The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we're going to learn uh, together. <clears throat> uh, before we jump, jump into the text, though, we need to understand some context, right? Uh, the Psalms are in the Old Testament. It's pretty much right in the middle of your Old Testament. And uh, the Psalms were a collection of songs. They were a collection of poems that constituted Israel's hymnal, right? Uh, it served also as an instruction manual of sorts. Uh, the Psalms are incredibly helpful in the Christian life. They give us a language, a vernacular of how to talk to God uh, when things are going poorly, how to handle adversity, how to handle pain and struggle, even how to handle uh, rejoicing. And while a good portion of the Psalms give us a language of how to talk to God when things aren't going so well, uh, this Psalm specifically actually gives us some ways to talk to God when things seemingly are going great. And you'll understand uh, why in a moment. Psalm 131 is a part of a section of uh, songs uh, called the Songs of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through 134. And so two to three times a year, the Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem would make a pilgrimage into the city, and Jerusalem sat on a high hill, and so they would ascend into the city on their pilgrimage. And along the way, it's understood that they would sing these songs or they would recite uh, these songs from Psalm 120 to 134. It's also quite possible that the priests, as they would ascend the steps into the temple, would recite these psalms as they went into uh, the temple. So you can think of the songs of ascent kind of like the Jews' road trip mixtape, their traveling songs, their pilgrimage songs. Um, maybe you're too young to know what uh, mixtapes are. I'm not. I'm old. I had, had cassette tapes, probably still have cassette tapes someplace. <laughs> um, but for you younger, hipper folks, think of it as a Spotify playlist. It was the, the Jews' Spotify playlist for traveling, right? Uh, so with that said, uh, we're going to go ahead and look at verse 1, and we're going to look at the prideful soul, the prideful soul. So it says this, <clears throat> O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Uh, sometimes I find it helpful to read other translations, and I, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his interpretation of the first verse. He interprets it this way in the message. He says, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. And so the author of this psalm is David, and we're, we're kind of eavesdropping in on his prayer it's not a creepy eavesdropping. It's more of a holy eavesdropping, I suppose. And it's easy as we read this psalm, uh, particularly as we progress through the end, to think, well, David's got this all figured out. But keep in mind, whatever wisdom David has learned, he's most likely learned it the hard way, just like we all have. Uh, and there's a reason I picked this psalm. It's, uh, it's New Year's Eve, if you didn't know that. And uh, this is the time of year where we make resolutions, right? We uh, get gym memberships that last a month and go on diets that go a week. It's a time of year where we make commitments uh, about the, the new year. And I feel like as a pastor, I'm contractually obligated to poo-poo New Year's resolutions. Um, so I'm going to buck the trend, okay? And here's what I'm going to say. If New Year's resolutions are helpful to you, awesome. Go for it. 
Uh, if they're not helpful, don't do them. How about that? There's some exhortation for you uh, this morning on New Year's resolutions. But I do know this. It seems as if resolutions are often born out of some dissatisfaction and are rooted in our own ambition. We want a better body, a better job, a better house, and none of those things in and of themselves are necessarily bad things. But our resolutions are often about us. So what is David saying here, and how does it relate to New Year's resolutions and beyond? Well, he says in the first verse, my eyes are not raised too high. Why does he say this? Perhaps because Psalm 18.27 says, you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. Now, haughty is not a word we, we use very often, but it means arrogantly superior. So what David is saying is our arrogantly superior eyes bring us down. <clears throat> he goes on to say, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Why does he say this? Perhaps because James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. David is essentially saying that he's working at not being prideful. He's declaring that he has no grandiose plans or self-centered ambition. And at this point, you might be saying, wait a second, that doesn't sound all that bad, what he's trying to avoid, right? What's wrong with dreams? What's wrong with being ambitious? It sounds heretical to the American dream, right? We live in a country where we can not only have ambition, but pursue those ambitions. But the problem is, is our ambition is oftentimes ill-defined. We're fooled into thinking that the American dream leads to fulfillment. We end up chasing our dreams, but find ourselves feeling empty at the end. Paul says very much the same thing in Philippians 2.3. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So what David is doing for us is allowing us to see the connection between ambition and pride. And pride is easy to identify in others. We can see it, right? But we can't overlook our own. So do you find yourself comparing yourself to others? If so, chances are you're struggling with pride. For our acceptance and self-worth, we often look to see how we're doing in relation to others. And pride always comes at the expense of others. We prop ourselves up by pushing other people down. Which reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, comparison is the thief of joy. It's not one of my favorite quotes because it's so uplifting. <laughs> it's because... It hits so close to home. The problem with pride and ambition is that you never satisfy its quench. There's always somebody who has it more. There's always somebody who has it better. And keep in mind, too, that pride manifests itself in different ways. Uh, for example, insecurity is a sign of pride. Pride is thinking too high of oneself. Insecurity is thinking too low of oneself but both put an improper view on the self. Uh, I, I think to preach at Doxa, you have to quote Tim Keller, and so this is my, my one Tim Keller quote. I love what he says about pride and insecurity. He says this, 
Friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it. Don't you want to be the kind of person when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who in their imaginary life does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that give them the edge over others? Yes, yes, and yes. David is declaring that he's not prideful, but it's forcing us as the readers to ask the questions, where is our gaze fixed? Upon ourselves or upon God? Are we aspiring to humbly and fruitfully extend the fame of God or are we ambitious, diligently laboring to extend the fame of ourselves? How do we know? How do we know the answers to these questions? Do you know your, your inner longings? Are you aware of what's going on in your heart? I find that most people aren't. Well, our behavior is oftentimes a good indicator of what's going on on the inside. Our behavior is driven by our emotions, and our emotions are driven by what we believe, by what's going on inside of our hearts. I'll give you a quick example of this in my own depravity. <laughs> a few years ago, there was a, a scandal among a, a famous football player. It's not really important what the details were, but it was one of these things that was all over social media and all over in the headlines and kind of became the water cooler talk as you bumped into people who followed sports. You, you would talk about this scandal. And as I talked with people about this and as I informed them of this scandal, I found, I found myself feeling giddy almost. There was an excitement in spreading the news of this man's failure and I thought, what a strange thing. Why do, I, why do I feel this way? And I did some probing in my own heart, and I realized, well, I believe that my, my self-worth, my significance, is found in how I stand up, how I measure up to other people. And so when, someone's, when someone fails, there's a part of me that rejoices in it because I can push them down and prop myself up. I can look good in comparison to them. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> so do you find yourself exhibiting erratic behavior? Do you find yourself feeling jealous, anxious, angry? If so, mind that. Try to understand what's going on in your heart. Underneath it all, there's a good chance that pride is at least part of the reason why. I think it's why St. Augustine said that pride is the root cause of all other sin. Uh, David's son Solomon, maybe he had this in mind when he wrote Proverbs 4.23. He's generally considered the wisest man who ever lived. And he said in uh, Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And with guarding, there's a sense in which we keep bad things out. But also there's a sense in which we let good things in. So an application from this first verse would be, I think, to cultivate habits of understanding what's going on in our own hearts. 
So where is our gaze fixed? Upon ourselves or upon God? These are all good diagnostic questions to ask when you're making New Year's resolutions, setting goals, evaluating your dreams, etc. And what David says in verse 1, he's able to say because of what follows in verse 2. So in verse 2, we're going to look at the calm and quieted soul. Verse 2 says this, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, one only need to uh, read the headlines to know that we are not a nation of calm and quieted souls. Suicide rates are up. Teen depression rates are up. There's more political animosity than ever. Uh, Generally speaking, Americans are not a calm and quieted people. Uh, I think this is what Thomas Merton was talking about with this observation of culture. He says this, we live in a society whose, whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension, to strain every human desire to the limit, and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. Our culture is tense, frenetic, fast-paced, impulsive, and oftentimes empty. And just some snapshots to illustrate this, um, Elon Musk, if you're not familiar with Elon Musk, he's one of the richest and most powerful men in the world. Uh, He's probably the only person who can boast that he started $4 billion companies, PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, and SolarCity. I found this interview he gave with Rolling Stone recently interesting. He had just broken up with his girlfriend, and he was distraught, so much so that he could barely make it through the interview. Listen to what he says here. He says, if I'm not in love, if I'm not with a long-term companion, I cannot be happy. I'll never be happy without having someone. Going to sleep alone kills me. When I was a child, there was one thing I said, Musk continues. His demeanor is stiff. Yet in the sheen of his eyes and the trembling of his lips, a high tide of emotion is visible. I never want to be alone. That's what I would say. His voice drops to a whisper. I don't want to be alone. Or take uh, the case of Michael Jordan. Uh, If you're over 30, you generally consider Michael Jordan the best basketball player who's ever lived. Uh, There we go. I got an amen there. Uh, if (laughs) If you're under 30, you're a prisoner of the moment, and perhaps you think LeBron James or... Kevin Durant or Steph Curry is the best basketball player ever. Uh, Regardless, Michael Jordan, he's one of the best. He's the best, but he's one of the best at the very least, right? Um, He turned 50 a few years ago, and ESPN.com did an article on him, and I, I found it fascinating. It talked about how insanely competitive this man is and how he's struggling to live life without playing basketball. Listen to what he says. It's an addiction. You ask for the special power to achieve these heights, and now you got it, and you don't want to give it back, but you can't. If I could, then I could breathe. It's consumed me so much, he says. I'm my own worst enemy. I drove myself so much that I'm still living with some of these drives. I'm living with that. I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know if I could. And here I am still connected to the game. How can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me, he asks. 
how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? There's a lot you could say about Elon Musk and Michael Jordan, but at the very least, we could say these are not calm and quieted souls. And as much as we can judge and scorn these men from afar, we need to look no further than our own lives to know that we're often no different. So when David says that he's calmed and quieted his soul, that should grab our attention. And he said he was able to do this because he was like a weaned child. Now, you all are smarter than me, but when I read this verse, I really struggled with that. It seemed to me it would make sense that the metaphor would say he, uh, he was like a, a nursing child. Uh, if your Facebook feeds are like mine, they're full of uh, cute babies in adorable outfits, laying on a decorative uh, blanket, sleeping very peacefully, right? And this is a way of families announcing they have a new addition uh, to their family. And babies can sleep like that because they have a full stomach, right? They are so calm and peaceful and quiet. So what, why in the text is calm and quiet not connected to a nursing child? Why is it a weaned child? Well, a nursing child is ruled by his or her stomach. He knows where there is milk and will scream and cry if he's denied. A weaned child, though, is satisfied not by his stomach, but by his mother. The mother is the source of satisfaction. A weaned child is satisfied just to be in the presence of his mother. So what David is saying is he's learned how to quiet his soul because he values the giver more than the gifts. He values God's presence more than his products. Perhaps Jesus had this psalm in mind when the disciples came to him and they were asking him who the greatest was. And he told them that unless they became like a child, they would never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps, too, Paul had this calm and quieted soul in mind in Philippians 4 when he said, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You see, a calm and quieted soul is the result of us delighting and resting in God. And this is an important point. A calm and quieted soul, it's a byproduct, right? It's not an end in and of itself. I see people who are not Christians and they're longing for some peace and quiet in their lives. They don't want conflict. They don't want busyness. They don't want frenzy. Yet without God, that sort of peace and quiet is fleeting. It has no staying power. It becomes at best a brief season of life. If we aim solely for a calm and quiet life, I think we'll be disappointed. But if we delight and rest in God, if that's our aim, there's a promise of a lasting satisfaction that will follow. So there's a higher goal here than just a little peace and quiet. That higher goal is our relationship with God. And so is that easy? No. 
and it's incredibly difficult. I think this is why uh, David compared the calm and quieted soul to a weaned child, right? In, in Jewish culture, oftentimes a child wouldn't be weaned until age three. And as you might imagine, that probably came with a lot of kicking and screaming and gnashing of teeth, much like the process of me taking the iPad away from my eight-year-old when he's playing a video game. It's not pretty. <laughs> the truth is, is we all need to be weaned from our self-sufficiency, our self-will, and our self-seeking. And I think this is why Paul used that language of he learned the secret of being content. It's very much a process. And perhaps at this point you're starting to wonder if the secret to contentment is a less busy calendar. Perhaps you think, if I could just be less busy, perhaps that I could attain this calm and quieted soul. I can't tell you whether or not you need to eliminate things from your calendar. I do know this. We're some of the busiest people on the planet, and I'm not sure it's all good. We have the same amount of time as every human being who's ever lived, yet far more choices. If you've never wrestled with what your schedule communicates about your commitment to God, your commitment to community, or your commitment to mission, Perhaps that could be a good New Year's resolution. Here's what I do know. Paul and David were busy. David was a king. Paul was a church planter and a missionary, right? This is how Paul described his life one time. (laughs) He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food, and cold and exposure. Paul was a busy guy. So this call to contentment, the call to a calm and quieted soul, is not in the absence of busyness, activity, or suffering, but in the midst of it. Maybe this is how David learned the truths of this song, in the midst of the chaos, not in the absence of it. So if, if Paul and David can be content and live this sort of life, then I believe we can too. As we suffer through a job loss, as we go through the carpool pickup line, in the midst of a conflict with a loved one, in tough financial times, and yes, even while shopping at Costco during the holiday season where most Christians lose their salvation, <laughs> we can have the calm and quieted soul. So how does one enter into this sort of life? Do we just snap our fingers and conjure it up? I don't think it's nearly that easy. The reality is is that we all live an anti-Psalm 131 life, an anti-Psalm 131 life. If we're truthful, the psalm really reads like this. My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are judgmental. I look down on other people, and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me, things that I think will bring me glory. I'm like a hungry baby fussing on his mother's lap. I'm like a hungry baby. I'm restless with my demands and worries. I cast my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. This is a disorienting way of life. 
Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, he had a way of categorizing all of the psalms. And he had three categories. He said every psalm falls into one of these three. They're either a psalm of orientation, psalm of disorientation, or a psalm of reorientation. An anti-Psalm 131 life is disorienting, but what Psalm 131 is calling us to is reorientation. So how do we reorient ourselves? Well, I believe verse 3 provides some clarity as it looks at the power of hope. David finishes off the psalm by saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope is a funny word, isn't it? Uh, It's oftentimes used in different ways. If you're like me, during the holiday season, you saw these commercials where there's a family inside the house, and they're opening Christmas presents, and it's snowing outside, and all of a sudden, the, the wife pulls the husband outside, and behold, in the driveway is a brand new Lexus with a bow on top, right? And they all celebrate, and they're all happy, right? So for 35 years, I've hoped for a Lexus in my driveway at Christmas, and has yet to come. It's not been there every Christmas. It's a funny thing. So to say that I hoped was to say that I wished. That's not how the Bible talks about hope. Just listen into these psalms. Listen to how the word hope is used. Psalm 25.5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I hope in all the day long. Psalm 31:24 Be strong and take heart all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 62:5 Yes my soul find rest in God my hope comes from him. You see hope is rooted in an expectation of fulfillment. And our hope is always in something. And it's worth noting here just to take a slight tangent that in the midst of life's struggles and questions and doubts, we're not hoping for God to give us everything that we want. The hope that the text is talking about is a hope in who God is. It's trusting in his providence in any and every circumstance. So hope is not wishful thinking, but anchored dependence. And the surety of our future hope is strong enough to shape our present reality. And we just uh, experienced this in Advent, right? Advent's a time of year where we look back to the Jews longing for a coming Messiah. And we look forward, we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. And the reason that we can hope for that second coming is because there was a first coming. Hope is not naive optimism. Rather, we expect God to come through because of his past faithfulness. So we are all longing for calm and quieted souls. And before us are two paths. There's one very large and broad path that says with enough posturing, with enough ego inflating, with enough self-advancement, with enough accomplishment, we can find satisfaction. There's a second path, though. It's much more narrow. And that path says that rather than increasing we must decrease. And that satisfaction is not earned, but embraced. This is because the calm and quieted life is not found in a pursuit 
but a person. The calm and quiet soul only happens through a faith-shaped hope in God by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and by the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. It's almost impossible to read Psalm 131 without reading the previous psalm, Psalm 130. At the tail end of that psalm, you'll see there's a lot of um, similarities in these two psalms. But the tail end of that psalm says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If our hope lies in our accomplishments, our dreams, or our ambitions, we will fail and we'll be disheartened. Our worth is not measured by what we do, but by who we are. And we belong to God. We belong to God because we're made in his image. We belong to God because he ransomed us through the blood of his son. As the psalm says, in him there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. It was this uh, Jesus who once said, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we've already established that you all are smarter than me, but when I, uh, this passage came alive to me once I understood really what a yoke was. So yoke as a a training device, I think, is still used, but it was certainly used in the ancient Near East. It was kind of a T-shaped looking device. And what would often happen is that uh, as you hooked up uh, the yoke to uh, farm animals, probably oxen, you would have a larger, more veteran, more experienced ox on one side, an ox that knew the ropes, that knew what to do and when to do it. And you would pair that larger, smarter, wiser ox with a a smaller, immature ox, right? And that older ox would show them the ropes. And so as they would be pulling the plow, you might imagine that younger ox would want to go chase butterflies (laughs) or go, go on an adventure or look for food. And that older ox would just keep going on the path and would just give a slight tug to pull that younger ox on its way. This passage comes alive once I understand that. Jesus is that older ox. And we're the younger ox who's wanting to wander, wanting to go our own way. And Jesus is tugging us. He's pulling us back. He's leading the way. He's pulling us along. And even more than that, he's carrying all the weight. Quiet and a calm life is not earned, taken, or stumbled upon. It's bestowed upon us by the one worthy enough of earning it, the one capable enough to lead us, the one capable enough to carry all the weight. So the Psalm 131 life is not detached from life struggles. It's not some higher state of consciousness. It's not necessarily about emptying our schedules and living like a monk. It's not so much about what we are doing, but who we are being. So this is not a three-step sermon on how to achieve your best life and acquire a calm and quiet soul. I can't make that happen. 
It's more of a call to childlike wonder, daily bread dependence, and easy yoke living. It's a reminder, ultimately, of where our satisfaction is found. As Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And you might be saying, that's not me. I I don't have that sort of life. I don't find myself with that yearning all the time. I don't want that sort of life, but I, I don't have it, but I want it. How can I find it? Well, know this, you're in good company. Just read the Psalms. The good news is that God meets us in our longings, our questions, our doubts, and our curiosity. So if you want to meet with God, open his word, pray, commit yourself to a community, and I think God will show up. So I hope you leave today and you do some wrestling with God. Perhaps you could ask yourself and those closest to you, am I delighting in God? How do I know? Am I exhibiting a calm and quieted soul? If not, what's keeping me from it? Is it my schedule? Is it something else? Am I doubting who God is? Or am I just lazy? What could I do to help cultivate a Psalm 131 sort of life? As I close, I'm reminded of the end of the psalm, uh, which says, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And I can't help but recall my favorite movie, The Shawshank Redemption. Andy, who's the main character, says to his best friend, Red, at one point, he says, Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Our hope never dies because God didn't. He always delivers upon his promises. This is the hope that we cling to. It is as Isaiah 40 says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So as we spend our last few minutes and hours in the year 2017, uh, the text exhorts us to hope in God. As we look forward to whatever 2018 brings, the text exhorts us to hope in God. So as I pray, let us hope together. Lord, if we're honest, we live the anti-Psalm 131 life. We're prideful, we're ambitious, we thump our chest, we prop ourselves up by pushing other people down. Would you make us aware of that in our own lives? Would you move in our hearts through the work of your spirit to, to cause us to confess that and to repent of that? Would we be a people also that would just long for a calm and quieted soul and know that to have that, we need to value you as the giver more than your gifts? That's our prayer for 2018, that we would delight and rest in you and remember that we can always trust in you, we can always hope, because you always deliver upon your promises.
pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.